0: Hello and welcome to Work Interrupted, a podcast looking at work life after COVID and asking, what next? I'm Christina Patterson and I'm talking to people from a wide range of working backgrounds to find out how their own work is changing in the light of current challenges, what they think will happen to the work landscape and how we can make work work better for each other and for us. Today I'm thrilled to welcome Jackie Kay, poet, playwright, novelist and Scots Maca or National Poet of Scotland. Jackie has won many awards for her work and was made an MBE in 2006 and a CBE in 2020. She's Professor of Creative Writing at Newcastle University and Chancellor of the University of Salford. In this incredibly honest and moving conversation, she talked to me about what poetry can do in dark times, her own emotional struggles during this pandemic and what Black Lives Matter means for all of us. Well, it's an absolute... Delight to have you on the podcast, Jackie. Thank you so much for agreeing to do this. Um, now, the me. epigraph: the epigraph to Darling, your new and selected poems, is a quote from Brecht. In the dark times, will there also be singing? Yes, there will also be singing about the dark times. This brought tears to my eyes because mm-hmm. we're certainly in dark times and you've been singing more loudly perhaps than ever before, what does that quote mean to you?
1: Oh, that's lovely. I'm, I'm really uh, grateful for you for, for bringing that quote up. Um, it means so much to me all at once. It's it's, it's extraordinary because it's a very short quote, but it's a typical Brecht to me. It's, mm. um, because Brecht did write about the dark times, um, but with such humour. And Brecht uh, wrote such beautiful but songs, but they also had humour in them. I mean, Brecht's gone into our language, Brechtian. Um, but in this particular time, it it means that we have to really find the light. We are in very dark times, troubled times, and we have to be able to be thankful for small mercies and find the light, find the singing uh, where, wherever we can. And um, I just feel I feel that's a, a, a way to live by. You know, it's a motto for life.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm. And a few weeks ago, you wrote a poem called Essential about the key workers who kept us going during this time. You have also been working your socks off, producing or uh, occasionally repurposing a poem a week, doing TV, radio, your wonderful Macca to Macca series, and speaking not just to Scotland, but globally about the power of poetry to help us make sense of things. That looked pretty damn essential to me. Have you felt like a key worker during this time?
1: Oh, that's lovely. Yes, actually, I have. I think that I think poetry is essential. Um, When when the First Minister of Scotland announced that she was going to be giving out a baby box to every baby born in Scotland, full of essential things. I wrote to the Scottish government, as you do, and said, how about including a poem in the box of essential things? And to my surprise, they wrote back and said yes. And then that meant I was under quite a lot of pressure to write that poem, Welcome We One. I wrote the poem, I went to the parliament, I hand wrote it, I picked the paper,
0: um,
1: the the, the colour of the paper, and so everybody... Every baby born in Scotland gets a copy of this poem in my handwriting called Welcome We One. Audrey Lord said, you know, famously, poetry is not a luxury. And I uh, firmly and wholly believe, uh, utterly believe, that we need poetry in order to survive. Mm.
0: Mm. I know you've been incredibly busy and it must have been slightly irritating hearing so many people talk about, you know, baking banana bread and doing the other <laughs> things they've been, or soda bread, you know, the things they've been, or their increased leisure time during lockdown. Did you feel an absolute obligation to keep going, even though you must have been exhausted at times?
1: Yeah, I really did, Christina. I felt a complete obligation because, you know, I, my um runs out my carriage turns into a pumpkin next March. And I thought, I don't, well, we've got no idea how long lockdown life will continue for. And that would take up quite a large chunk of being macker, So I still wanted to find a way to be actively macker, which is why I invented this programme, macker to macker, And uh, then I also just thought I wanted to give people something that was new. So I did the Sunday Poem Series, which I did, for, as you mentioned, I did for 17 weeks um on on the trot but i also actually have baked a banana bread twice during
0: the- <laughs> <laughs> you know even I did Jackie and I never bake anything I was so I was so brainwashed by Instagram I did actually bake one it wasn't particularly nice but <laughs> Yeah,
1: that's <laughs> funny. So, um, but yes, I have been a bit uh, envious of people that are sort of, you know, rereading Middlemarch or um, <laughs> or, or, or teaching themselves sign language or doing courses in psychoanalytical psychotherapy for free or doing Joe's exercise class. And I've been slightly uh, envious of them, of those people. But I have actually changed a lot of things as well myself. You know, I do yoga every day. I meditate. Really? Yeah, and I've done all of that during lockdown because I just felt like I needed to also take charge of the things i could take charge of so i've been my partner and, and me denise and i have been cooking each other these really oh, endlessly yeah. more elaborate meals and um and I've, I've kind of really upped my game as a chef <laughs> In fact, in fact, if, I, if the if the poems run out, I might actually turn to that and and, and uh, have a wee restaurant in my house and people read people a poem in between courses and say, I used to be a poet
0: once. <laughs> Can I go on the waiting <laughs> list now for that meal? Although you will get the poems. The poems won't run out. I mean, frankly, I if you know, you would have thought if anything was going to turn me into a chef, it would be a pandemic and being unable to leave the house. But, oh, no, oh, no, I have still have a huge interest in eating and zero interest in cooking, unfortunately. But really? um, oh. Yeah,
1: but,
0: um, yeah. but yeah, I certainly haven't cute. lost weight oh, during yeah. lockdown, my God. H- have, has there anything that you have discovered about yourself that has surprised you during this time? Yes. um Actually, I
1: think these times are searchlight times, this set. We shine a light on on us all including ourselves when we it would be strange to emerge from a period like this without having learned something about yourself I think mm-hmm. so um it's where to begin with what I've learned and um, well one thing that I've learned is, is a thing that I think a lot of people have learned um that I didn't know my neighbors I didn't know all what they did and there wasn't mm-hmm. properly curious about them um and i feel a bit ashamed about that i now have learned that you know the woman down the road at december 61 used to manage crises world crises and work for the un you know Mm. the 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 person around the corner from her is a nurse the guy at the very end of the street works for uh lgbtq um crisis group so um it just every single person on this street has a different story to tell either They're a personal one or a work related one, and um, I found that really utterly fascinating. But I've also thought, well, why didn't I know this about, about everybody? So we've got this WhatsApp group, um, and I hope I, I think that will continue. I hope that that persists that sort of community spirit that's emerged from lockdown. Um, mm. But the other thing that I've learned about myself is that uh, I actually. You know, I would go to enormous lengths to avoid writing a novel. <laughs> and, uh, writing this novel that I'm supposed to have written and now is actual proof because I could have used this time and um, just getting on with my novel and get and getting it finished, this novel that I've been writing forever. But no, I decided to do macker to macker and Sunday poems and fake banana bread, <laughs> and practice yoga and meditation, anything, anything, anything but write this bloody novel.
0: <laughs> well, I'm very I'm <laughs> thrilled to bits to hear that you are meant to be writing a novel because I was going yeah. to ask you because um then I mean you've only in terms of adults the last one was Trumpet wasn't it which I reviewed and I think that was in 1998 and it won all those awards including the uh, Guardian Fiction Prize what what has um well I think you may have asked answered the question because you've written so many books of poetry and plays and short stories but this is and one and one novel for children but um why apart from clearly hating writing novels (laughs) has it taken you so long
1: Uh. It's, I am. And I have been writing this novel for a long time. It's called Bystander, right. and uh, um. I am. I know the characters are all there. In fact, I feel very guilty um, when I neglect them. Um. But the the problem is actually the subject matter of the of the novel. Um. Because it's really about it's about bystanding itself. It's about a number of characters that all witness the same thing, and how mm-hmm. they respond to that. But because we're living in times that keep rapidly changing. It's actually, for me as a novelist, very, very hard to keep changing with it or, or to work out how to do that. I mean, I know that my dear friend, Ali Smith, uh, has worked out a way of doing that con- writing contemporaneously, but I don't write prose anyway fast. And mm. uh, and also I don't like to try and write so bang up to the time either. Um, so it's just, a, it's a technical problem, really. Um, mm. But also I don't actually think Christina, to tell you the truth, and I hope my publishers don't listen to this podcast, but um, <laughs> I don't actually feel like a natural novelist. I don't think I am a novelist. I think I'm somebody who happened to write Trumpet, and that was a book that people loved, and it was, you know, it was over 20 years, and, I, and people loved that book. But um, I don't think I'm a natural novelist. In fact, some days I wish I'd never written Trumpet because it's been the bane of my life writing this other book, and it makes me feel like a failure. So I feel a failure a lot of the time and um, and I know that that sounds really silly probably even self-indulgent but I do feel a failure because I haven't written this book that I'm supposed to have written and you have to keep extending the deadlines and, and I have been paid I mean, I've been given an advance so I feel mm-hmm. terrible guilt about this book and it's the bane of my life um, but you know I will do it one day I hope but but um yes this this just How? proves it though that I had I had four or five months I could have just got my got the heat done got in the study and finished the book but no I didn't and I think part of the problem as well is that because you I mean a big public role it's actually difficult to to perform big public roles and be a novelist I think you think mm. you can do it and be a poet but I don't think you can do it so easily and be a novelist if you're not a natural novelist to begin with.
0: That's very interesting, very, very interesting. I I mean, there's so much to to say about that, because it's partly about um, how writers and writers of, fiction and particularly novelists are expected to function now that the economics of publishing mean that almost nobody can make a living from being a novelist and how you combine that with earning a living uh, and if you're freelance you're juggling lots of different things and each one of those things takes up lots of energy so it's very hard to find the mental space to write a uh, hundred thousand words I think um, you know journalists can sometimes do it on top of journalism jobs but I think writing fiction is is something else and particularly writing literary fiction which of course yours would be because the headspace that's needed Mm. I think requires a degree of concentration it's very hard to find when your energy is scattered in that way
1: yeah I agree 100% and also I've had my I did have my mum and dad um, my dad died I know I'm so sorry But, but I had them um for four years doing a lot of caring for them so I'd Mm -hmm. spend at least half of my time in their house and and Mm -hmm. although you would think that that would leave time to write it didn't really it just left time to kind of keep aboard all the the emails and sometimes I go to the library there the library that I used to go to as a girl because they were uh, they were in the same house um that I grew up in and Mm I go to Bishop Briggs library and uh and I could write poems there um, but as I say, I just couldn't write. I, I just feel like for a novel, you need to be—you need to hold yourself up in a cellar or an attic. For me, it, it's quite mm. a punitive thing to do to yourself. <laughs> mm, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you need to be in the same place. They don't travel well for me. They're not. They're not. Whereas poetry kind of lends itself to being peripatetic, and it's quite portable. Mm. Um, but but a novel, you know, got endless little notes stuck here and there you know, to keep track of everything that's happening to everybody, and uh, so I really need to be in my own house. And I've actually not been in my own house for the last four years that much. Yeah. In fact, when I come back to my house, I feel a bit strange in it. Um. So yes, that's the that's mm-hmm. the thing. And I, and also, Christine, I feel sort of maybe maybe this means that I'm just not um a good writer of fiction. But I feel that 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 life is important and your relationship being a good daughter is important for to mm. me. Being a good mother is being a good friend is. Um so and but the novelists that I know that actually are produce novels, they manage to shut all that out and they literally yeah. go into hibernation while they write. So, you know, whatever has happened to you in that time they won't they won't be they won't be responding. And I can't really be that person. Um I, I'm not sure I want to be that person
0: either. Um, well, I don't this like is so eight. fascinating. This is an ongoing obsession of mine, actually, Jackie, because it's <laughs> it about it? Oh, great. You know, absolutely yes, the ruthlessness of the artist, essentially, and, mm-hmm. and this whole, I, this whole thing about um, uh, people say, oh, well, uh, writing or art, acts of imagination, increase your empathy, and therefore, by implication, make you more mm-hmm moral and I'm thinking Mm -hmm. not if you know most of the writers I know, not not known for being Mother Teresa or Nelson Mandela or whatever I mean as we know or or, the fact is that there is I think um, very often a degree of ruthlessness that is necessary to carve out that uh, relentless focus on the matter in hand and I'm absolutely with you. I personally think life comes first. But I think um, in and and I think it raises interesting questions, because when when you hear people say, oh, uh, writing makes you or reading makes you more empathetic, you know, I then think about the the concentration camp guards who listen to Schubert or Mm -hmm. whatever, and where, where do you stand on that whole issue?
1: I, I find it really fascinating like you and really I mean I think we could we could talk about this for the whole time because I just find yes. it such an interesting <laughs> dilemma and I find it a moral question as well a question of, yes. of morality and it fascinates me because the novel is the best form for dealing with issues of morality and uh, the novel handles morals better than any any other form that I can think of really as a form it's all about morality it's all about questions of of, of belief Um, the novel um, but yet the, the novelists that I know that manage to carve the time away do have to be uh, ruthless and things can happen to you in that time and they won't actually know. Um mm-hmm. and I find that I can't be that person myself, um, so I can't be that novelist. Um, I just can't do it. And but I I you know, there's there's writers like say Grace Paley, who um I totally adore and admire Mm. and she produced a relatively small output I think of of short stories and but that's because she was busy being a friend and going on marches Mm. and being a mum and at the end of my life I would want to be able to say to myself have you done everything you could? And that wouldn't be, have you written all the books that you could? That would mm. be, have you done everything you could as as a daughter, as a mother, as a friend, as a person in the world? Have you done everything you could? So mm. that's just, you know, I wouldn't have wanted my dad, you know, my dad died recently. I wouldn't have wanted him to die and think that I hadn't been there for him for the last mm. whatever, however many years. And this used to really bother my dad too, um, me, me spending so much time with him because he was very worried about my work. And he'd Aww. say, Christ, you're some bloody daughter. I'm telling you, Christ almighty, you better get back to your in-house and get on with that book of yours. <laughs> and I said, well, Dad, uh, it doesn't it doesn't matter. It's more important for me to be here. And he went, well, Christ, it matters to me that you get on Aww. with your book. And then before he went into the care home, he said, the sooner I get into this home and out your way, the better. And I said, Dad. You're not in my way. And he said, mm. well, I'm in my own way then. I'm in my own way. <laughs> Which is just, it's just, um, quite quite something. But, yeah, I, I mean, I'm pleased that I've written the books that I've written. Um, But in some ways, Christina, I kind of think to myself, do you know what? I've written these books. That's that's maybe enough. You know, I, d- Does the world need another bloody novel for me anyway? Probably mm. not. So, anyway. Well, I don't...
0: It's very, very interesting. I don't... You know, I obviously can't wait to read your novel but I do think mm-hmm. these are actually unanswerable questions and I think they're mm-hmm. the questions we all face about uh the question you know it basically is ha- how how you pass your days is how you spend your life isn't it mm-hmm. and um mm-hmm. and what do you want to be known for and it, it's also the, the Raymond Carver poem about did you get what you want uh from this life um I did to call myself beloved and um mm-hmm. you, know, you are beloved if you love and love is an action isn't it it's about Uh, caring and nurturing and it's not about being loved but it but it's fascinating to me because it seems to me that in a way the maca role is something you were born to because it's so much a public role and it's and given that you were brought up by very political in fact communist parents who were peace activists um anti-nuclear campaigners um and that politics were, you know, one's tempted to say in your blood, but clearly in your case, not in your blood, but certainly in the air you breathed from the time you were a baby. Um, I, I think that strong sense of social responsibility has shaped you so profoundly that this feels like in a way you are a missionary for poetry. And th- and that brings in, you know, the other part of your, your life, your, your born again, Nigerian father, <laughs> who, who um, clearly, you know, had, has, uh, who you discovered, um, ha- remind me how old you were when you met your father. Um, 42, I think. 42. And, and, you know, that sort of shocking encounter you described so beautifully in Red Dust. Road um, and that I mean, I, I, do you feel like a missionary for poetry in a way?
1: Um, I I feel uh, missionary is an uncomfortable term for me. Of I don't know exactly what you mean, of but it's, kind of, it's, got, it's got unfortunate connotations. Of course, um, so so I wouldn't call myself a missionary, um, but I do feel. I like what you said about me and the macker role. I do feel <laughs> to the macker born rather than mm. to the manor born. To the mm. macker born, I do feel as if it was something that I was meant to do. And I remember when they asked me to be the macker, when Nicola Sturgeon phoned up and invited me to be the macker, I was very shocked. I didn't think they would pick me. and uh, But it there was kind of no question for me about saying uh, yes to it. Um, I, I absolutely knew that... That um that that I, I I needed to do it, but there was a lot. Of, there were a lot of people that were angry about me being made macker, and um and and there was one very famous Scottish woman poet who I won't tell you her name, but but she was furious that it wasn't her, and she said, uh, "You'll chip up. Five years is a long time, but you'll chip up, and when you do, I'll be watching." <gasps> Goodness me. Yeah so so that that's kind of been like a curse in a way i keep oh. so I keep wondering when, when the time is that i'm going to fall fat on my face because so far touch wood i haven't um tripped up but um but i feel that um you know i've had such an interesting relationship with my country scotland being black and being scottish mm. and i feel like for the first time in my life and i'm about to be 59 this year mm. um but. And that I actually feel like I properly belong to my country, but it's taken mm. me all that time and being made the country's national poet to do that, and that's quite extreme I can't and i can't I can't actually you know I pass it on to every black Scottish person who <laughs> just mm. become a national poet so that's 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 interesting um to me too that it feels very very validating, yeah, and also that I've found a different uh, I've got to know my country differently through being macker. Um, which has also been uh, an extraordinary, an extraordinary thing. But when I met my birth father, I mean, who's, as you said, a born-again Christian, he's, you know, he gives all of these sermons and he uses language very, very poetically, as religious people mm. do, all kinds of religion. And he uses his body and his hands very flourishingly, dramatically, um, colourfully, and mm. and so it was very nice strange because I saw a lot of myself in him. Um yeah. and it made me a question again what had <laughs> what had made me, you know, what that weak that question that we all ask ourselves about what makes us who who we are. And I do feel it's both in my case, it's my mum and dad, Helen and John Kay, but it's also I think I've genetically uh, got a lot from my birth mother and father that is in me too. So yes, it's all it's all a big pot.
0: Mm, fascinating. And one of the things that's happened Um, is that you've obviously become very, very famous in Scotland and stopped on the street and so on in a way that really never happens in England. I know it happened in Ireland. Seamus Heaney couldn't go anywhere pretty much without being mobbed and everybody said he was their cousin. I remember at the Bank Centre, the queues, you know, everybody said they knew him when we'd be there all night waiting for people to <laughs> finish queuing up to get his book signed and he was unfailingly charming to them just as I know you are. But and of course that recently people have been pretty locked away but that must also feel like a bit of a stress. You can't really have an off day. You know, when you snap at someone, you know, someone will be phoning in the mail or whatever and saying, you know, the Macca snapped at me. Does that feel <laughs> like a stress? <laughs>
1: That's so funny. Um, yeah, in Ireland, uh, Seamus was referred to as famous Seamus, isn't he? Um, exactly, so I'm, I'm yeah. Wearing, yeah. famous Seamus, lovely. lovely to have that little rhyme, a poem of a name. Um, but no, I don't actually feel find that to be a stress um, at all. It sometimes can be odd uh, and it can happen in the most odd situations. Like the other day I was taking part in a Black Lives Matter protest in my local park. And so I had a mask on and mm. we all were kneeling. And uh, and then when we got up from this, we, we knelt you know, for the nine minutes and in mm. complete silence, it was terribly moving. And then when we got up from this, this person said to me, are you Jackie King And I thought, oh, yeah, she can recognise me even when most of my face is wow. covered. Yeah. And then, uh, that's very, very funny. That was, you know, um, that was in Manchester. But that happens all over the place, actually, to me. And and but people often actually want to tell me something, I guess, because my work's quite personal. They feel that they know me. And mm. the strangest time of that was I was in uh, John Lewis in Glasgow. And this man came up to me and said, excuse me interrupting you in your private life, which is quite quintessentially Glaswegian, that phrasing. But are you Jackie Kay? And I said, yes. And he said, well, dear, I loved Red Dust Road and I'd love you to write a wee chapter every Christmas and tell me how everybody's getting on.
0: (laughs) Oh, how sweet. How sweet. Very sweet.
1: Yeah, and so, oh. and so often, people do, often these encounters with strangers that want to come and tell you something—they like gifts because then people will often tell me the most extraordinary stories about their lives, and and um and it, that feels a real privilege to me that people that people a that the work should matter to them at all, and b that they should want to to um to tell you things. And mm. The most recent example of that was that was in my mum's care home. This is before. Locked down and there was a young woman who was a kind of apprentice care young black woman and she was um I was pushing my mum to take her out that day in a wheelchair and she said she stopped me and she said you look a lot like a writer that I really love <laughs> and I oh. said who's that she said Jackie Kay and I said I am Jackie Kay oh. and she burst into tears started jumping up and down the spot oh. and <laughs> And then my mum in this kind of awkward kind of half wheelchair chiller puddle. And then, and my mum was like, What was that about?
0: <laughs> oh. it, was, it, was
1: really, it was so, so moving. It was amazing to me. So um oh, so so that's, wonderful. Uh, those kind of things are really I just feel I just feel lucky.
0: And you wrote in uh, Reality Reality, which I I recently read and absolutely loved. And oh my god, there's a quote in there about reality it might even be the epigraph and um and how the reality that we're in now is something I think even people with the most active imagination Mm. couldn't really have imagined but one of the things you did imagine then very very vividly was um being in a care home and uh Mm. years I presume before your parents your mother ended up in one and um and I wondered what uh you know what kind of uh, triggered that and how the reality is matched with that, particularly now that care homes have had this unbelievably traumatic time. And certainly in England care, well, I think it is the same in Scotland up to to some extent that care workers have been, have felt so ignored and had terrible struggles with PPE and uh, and so on. How, how, how has um, the reality of care home been for you and your mother compared to what you expected?
1: Um, it's a really interesting question. And it's true, Christina, that sometimes you can write things and it's almost like you walk into them. Your writing's ahead of you, your own imagination's ahead of you. Um I I, I think about that so much that sometimes it freaks me out. Mm. Um, because if I write about, you know, it's, it's a silly sort of <laughs> you know, it's it's a silly sort of way to think in some ways because you, you actually then get become a bit um wary of what you write. But um, mm. when I wrote the clothes, the story that you're referring to, I was just outraged at hearing about uh, my partner Denise's uh, aunt, who they just kept dressing in different clothes in the care home and they didn't seem to bother that mm. she, she wanted her own clothes. And so I wrote that story out of a sense of outrage for uh, my partner's aunt. Um, but the care home that my mum's in, would not mess up the clothes you know i had to put mm-hmm. iron all her labels into her clothes before she went in there last august and mm-hmm. the same with my dad iron his labels i felt like i was sending them to school you know oh. you to put these wee labels and clothes and get the re lunch box ready and, yeah. and um, so they don't mess up clothes and they're really um Hot on that and hot on all sorts of other things. Um, you know they had during this lockdown they were the first home in Scotland in Scotland to go into lockdown. They went into lockdown two mm-hmm. weeks before anyone else, and they haven't had her home. Touchwood hasn't had um the virus in it, but they've they've kind of gone to extreme extreme lengths. Um and uh, but actually every other home in Glasgow has had COVID, and Glasgow has been the worst hit city in the whole of the by um by the coronavirus and the home desk down the road from my mum 13 people died and then the one just up the road 11 people died and um so it has been absolutely terrifying and I have found this experience uh the hardest experience of my whole life even harder Mm. than my dad dying and harder than beaten up by fascists (laughs) harder than a broken heart and, and your relationships ending um harder than anything that I've had to go through because my mum's been grieving for my dad that she was with for 65 years and she's had Mm -hmm. to do that on her own and so it's tested everything in her and everything in me and she's often on the phone to me saying that she doesn't want to wake up in the morning so every call that I have with her I speak to every single day but every call I've got to try and find a way to to turn the conversation around um and get her to be back to being herself but it's very very hard um and yeah, and what and she keeps saying, you know, what a way to end your life and for old people the world over, I feel a terrible sadness for them because you're having to use your precious time that you've got left in the world, um, and be on your own, be isolated from the people that you love. And um it's just well it's just it's just a, it's a horror show. It's horrendous.
0: It is a horror show. Um I want to cry now, but I'm I'm going to not cry, but I I, I you know, I've lost my whole family now and um, I felt before uh, this thing happened um, that everybody I love dies and then this thing hit and then you think oh my god now really everybody literally everybody is at risk of dying and my blessing is that my mother really didn't want to go into a care home and she died three and a half years ago and I'm now I now feel very grateful that she managed to die before all this happened and I also feel grateful that I managed to give every member of my family a funeral because Mm -hmm. um, I I was in touch with my the undertaker who looked after my mother and my brother and uh, last week and she said it's been horrendous um, and that the local community have been rallying around Supporting her and uh, waving at her because the funerals have been so awful. So I think you know we're living in this kind of, as you say, it's a horror show. And um, some people are having a lovely time at home, and meanwhile, endless tragedies are unfolding around us. Yeah. Before we get yeah. too uh, too desperately sad, I'm just thinking that the word maker means maker, doesn't it, as well as kind of bard and Um, which I'm thinking of your father here again that that's a kind of practical thing it's like a kind of craftsman or artisan making things which you have been doing and making making these poems but the thing about poetry or indeed perhaps all art is that there is a whole other mysterious element to it almost an alchemical moment when the thing you've made becomes something else and almost takes on a life of its own. And and in a way, it's that thing that hits us in the soul and feeds us and makes poetry or whatever art it is that you love necessary at a time like this, or indeed any time. And I just wondered whether you have a favourite definition or description of that process. Mm, It's interesting
1: um, because the process is is. Complicated, you know, in the way that you know to use a cooking analogy again. Um, if you cook, the whole process is important from marinating to this, to that, the other. Um, so when you make a poem, some of the process is practical and some of it's mysterious. And mm-hmm. um, and each poem, no two poems come or arrive or are or, or worked at in the same way. Um, I do love the term maker, and um, because as you say, it means maker. And I love the idea that you you know you make a poem like you might make a table um I like I like that and I like the um the idea that macker um can be both public and private which mm. uh, I, f- I find the role of macker is both a public role but it's also I'm privately a poet to myself and and even if you write a "Quote unquote public poem," you still have to sit somewhere, your kitchen or on a train or wherever it is you're writing and write it. Mm-hmm. And that moment of the writing itself has to be private. And I think for for all writers actually, um, that mix of the public and the private worlds is something that you have to negotiate, and is quite a difficult thing to negotiate because obviously you need privacy and time alone in order to write in the first place. But I remember when my dad, when I became macker, my dad was 91 and a half, and he said to me. How long's your term in office? And I said to him, it's, "It's five years, Dad." And he said, "Well, your mother and I will just need to see out your term in office." Aww. And uh, it makes me want to cry because um, he very nearly did see out my term mm. in office. But no, I can't think of a single word for the process that you're you're talking about. Um, but it's just it's just the, the whole business of being a poet, and it's got many many different roles to it. So when people ask you, what is it like? Being a poet, you you have to think which aspect of being a poet do they mean, Mm. and uh, I remember, uh, you know, recently I was these Sunday poems. A lot of them I wrote fresh. You know, they were fresh poems, and some of them I wrote literally up against the wire. And there was this one I wrote, a banquet for my boys, which was for my my son and his friends Mm. that he live lives with, and um, and I actually felt as if as if i was making a wee banquet you know or <laughs> not a wee oh, banquet, a banquet yeah thing. but uh, i felt as if and then and then uh and and i had actually sent them a banquet i sent them um because my son uh, was hurt he's injured and he couldn't do his oh. take his turn to do the cooking so i sent his him and his friends this this banquet and oh. uh and and then having sent them the banquet I thought actually I'm going to write them poems I wrote this poem called A Banquet for My Boys and then read it to them all and uh, him and all his flatmates mates were in tears but oh. and it was quite a thing you know these 30 year old guys crying oh. but um but it made me think that poems for me when I was a wee girl I used to write poems and give them to people as wee presents you know Alice and Todd my mum Um, that's what I did and they were just wee gifts that I'd give to people and it in a in a sense, even now at the age of fifty nine, being a poet to me is is just being able to try and give people, uh, wee gifts.
0: Mm. What a wonderful way to look at it. What a wonderful way to look at it because it's so not about you then. And uh, to go back to our earlier conversation, I do think you know, the kind of the role of the ego in art is a very interesting one. But um, I suppose it's that. That point where it becomes um, something that is about the other rather than the subject in a way I mean again it 's a very difficult thing to articulate and and it 's very difficult to know how far that comes down to motivation as well i don 't know what was going through george eliot 's head when she wrote Middlemarch. It was certainly a gift to the world and and in my view, a gift um, of incredible sort of moral vision and breadth and complexity. Mm-hmm. But uh, whether she wanted to create, make that gift, who knows? It's it's a fascinating uh, subject, isn't it? Well, I
1: think I think she did. And I think she was driven by doing that. But I think the process really hurt her of being a writer because she was so sensitive to criticism. Mm-hmm. And, you know, her, hus- well, her husband her used to have to, he wasn't properly her husband, but the man mm-hmm. that she loved and lived with, he used to have to read things in advance and then hide them. In different parts oh. of the house, so she wouldn't get to see them, and she used to get these terrible migraines. If she did come across something that had been written about her that was negative, she would have migraines for days. Um, and um, so she wouldn't have adapted well to our times because no. you can't hide. There's no such thing as hiding in the view now because everything's plastered all over the internet, and there's no mm. such thing. As being, oh well, it's tomorrow's fish and chip wrapping paper. Right, exactly. Because it's fishing <laughs> it, of wrapping paper forever and it's always readily available. And so you have to develop a kind of a tougher uh skin, I guess, to that process mm-hmm. of, of what it means to be uh publicly criticized. Um I remember actually, my, my my baby poem got a terrible, created a terrible furor and a lot of criticisms. Yeah. And that was very upsetting to me at the time. I mean, somebody, the Mumsnet people wrote a lot of kind of right wing stuff about that. I hadn't thought what it was like for a woman suffering from postnatal depression. And that I was making postnatally depressed mothers feel inadequate. And there was this kind of big furor about writing in old Scots and then but the one that actually hurt me the most <laughs> was that somebody said of my handwriting because I'd written the poem out in my own hand what a horrible font <laughs> oh.
0: how ridiculous I know
1: and um and I just thought oh my god so and that was just something that I I did to, as, as I mean now it's very different that's that's interesting to see the journey of that wee poem because now and People love it, and they did a survey recently asking them what was their favorite thing in that baby box. and The poem came out in the top couple of things, and people stopped with new babies everywhere, and it's inframed in people's walls all over the place. So, but it, it had a kind of a rough wee start to its life as a poem. <laughs> mm.
0: And what does it I mean, do you feel that because obviously you had a terrible time being well, well basically, as the subject of race, racist attacks, and bullying as a child? And I want to talk mm. about that more in a moment, but. Uh, not your childhood, but the, um, the the racial aspect of it. But um, do you feel that that helped or does nothing really prepare you for this kind of criticism?
1: Oh, I think that's an absolutely fascinating question, and I've never ever been asked that before. Really, it's so interesting. No, never never been asked that before. And that's really really interesting. And actually, probably um, the answer to that is is yes, it probably. I mean, it's, a, it's hard to, to use the word help, but it probably did prepare me um because every every person that's had to suffer discrimination of any sort uh knows what that feels like knows what it's like to be suddenly cast outside um and to be stereotyped um whether that's a physical form of of abuse or a mental one and um and you've all all of us that have had that experience have had to deal with it in different ways Mm. I dealt with it through using my imagination. So poetry mm. was a sanctuary for me, it was a refuge, it was a place to go and a place to make myself stronger. Write revenge poems. Initially as a child I used to just write revenge poems, um, mm. about people that called me names. Um, but for some things there isn't really a, a a poetic response, you know, when fascists put up posters with your name in it and razor blades behind these posters. Yeah. Uh it's it's very difficult to to respond to that with, and I didn't respond to that with the poem never written about it in poetry form but I did make a speech I made a political speech um, at my university at that time and uh, and well, I think about 400 people were there and I quoted Angela Davis or mm. James Baldwin's letter to Angela Davis mm. when she was in prison which was about really uh, standing up and and, and being counted now, if they come for me in the morning they'll come for you at night and I do mm. feel compelled utterly compelled to always speak out about things that I feel are are wrong Um, but I also feel that it's quite a a delicate balance once you have a public role because I wouldn't like to misuse the platform so people are always asking me what I think of this that and the other Mm. and I often choose not to say um, because I don't want to just take the the role of being macker and use it wrongly if you see what I mean so I'm looking forward to I'm looking forward to not being macker in some ways because i can then feel <laughs> feel fear, um about what i say
0: yes yes i mean the reading rereading the poems um about racism from your childhood through your life really made me cry and of course now you're reissuing um Lamp Lamplighter, this extraordinary, devastating play about slavery and in particular the role that Scotland played in slavery um, through the voices of, of uh, some women slaves. It's incredibly upsetting. The graphic detail in it is horrendous. Were, were you, I know you were reluctant initially to take it on for reasons I think of, you know, so many black writers are kind of, you know, almost forced to write about slavery and it, and it becomes, um, you can be pigeonholed or stereotyped, but obviously it is the subject, apart from the pandemic, it is the subject of these times. What effect did it have on you to read all that terrible, devastating research? It was, it had a terrible effect. It was traumatic. I do think William
1: Faulkner said the past is not past and uh and I do think that we live in these times these times are exact you know result of slavery and the slave trade and I and it's everywhere that you look um and I do feel that Scotland's relationship to the slave trade in particular to me of the of the of the countries of the UK it uh, is 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 extra complex because Scottish people's sense of self and identity isn't that at all, and I think that Scotland as a country have been slow to acknowledge that that legacy in the way that say Bristol, London, Manchester, um, Birmingham um, have 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 done already, and that is changing in Scotland, but it's it's only really just changing now. I mean. If you look at just Glasgow alone as a city, the Gallery of Modern Art was funded by money from the slave trade. Buchanan Street's Buchanan Street after a slave trade owner. Virginia Street, Jamaica Street. Um, it's all the whole city actually was one of the one of the cities in the whole of the UK that benefited most from the slave trade, and it's not the image that Glaswegians have when no. you sing, I belong to Glasgow, dear old Glasgow town. There's nothing the matter with Glasgow except it's going round and round. Nobody's thinking about uh money from from the slave trade or of the triangular slave route or the fact that in Jamaica, every second person has got a Scottish surname and every second place in Jamaica called after somewhere in scotland you know there's an island jamaica i was really shocked when i went to jamaica because i went to the poetry uh, festival there called calabash which incidentally Mm. is an amazing poetry festival one of the most amazing ones i've ever attended in my life Mm. but i was so shocked every every corner you turned there was there was island you know (laughs) it was just like there was aaron there was it was just like being in, in scotland it was so so shocking and so I just feel that, yes, it doesn't make me popular and I've had a lot of abuse for every time I have spoken out about racism, I get a huge amount of abuse for doing it. So you have to st- sort of, you know, I was on Channel 4 talking about racism in Scotland news and uh, I got this torrent of abuse after that that was really upsetting. Um, but, you know, um, uh, yeah, you have to just, you have to be what you have to be and um, racism is a scourge on our on our society and it's deeply deeply shocking that here we are in the year 2020 with attacks like the attack that happened in george floyd in america still happening and the the kind of racism that happens in this country still happening and you know we like to actually think of racism as being something that's far away well that's these people over there or that's these people down those hundreds of years far away um, in some way or another but the trouble with racism is it's up very close by and uh, like Toni Morrison said there's more future in the past than there is in the future so in order to actually move forward into our future we're going to have to also see the the connections between the past the present and the future and see how close everything is so yes I spent one of the characters in the lamp lighter is uh a child and she's being locked up in the fort that they locked children in before they went on their slave ships and to write that I I wrote the, I wrote it and the, the director Pam Fraser Solomon said that it wasn't frightening enough and she asked me what I was frightened of and I said well I'm actually frightened of my very own cellar I know that's ridiculous but I'm frightened of my cellar and she said well go and stand in the cellar and make yourself stand in your cellar and stand there for uh, 40 minutes and um, so I did that I made myself and, and I was I actually petrified and then I came back and wrote that girl's voice again mm. and um and she was you know she was she was very very different but yes the director Pam Fraser Solomon put me through quite a lot of things like that to write The Lamp lighter. she was an amazing person to work with um because I had to find a way to make it really really vivid and there's a lot of facts that I wanted to put in which come in the form of the kind of shipping news um but I, I uh I also wanted just people to know that, that three days before a slave ship docked, um, that the putrescence of feces, vomit, and dead bodies could be smelt three days before it arrived into the harbour. I wanted people to know that travelling chains, travelling chains, were sold in pubs in Bristol, Manchester, London, and that the church itself role in the in the in slavery in this country was was complicit was terribly complicit they used to put adverts for uh, uh, runaway slaves and on, on church doors and um so i wanted people to know these things because people don't readily know them and they um, and we
0: should it's just i mean when i when i when i read it i i, I felt sick actually i think as any any sane person would but i think mm-hmm. it's a very important piece of work and i'm i think it's uh I presume the decision to publish it was made before Black Lives Matter, before the recent yeah. protests. Yes. Yeah, it was.
1: It's been in the pipeline for, for quite a while. So it's just one of these strange things of timings. I mean, yeah. Um. But also sometimes, you know, it was originally published in 2007 and that's been republished. But um, sometimes a book can come into itself, as it were, mm. um, just because of timing. Um, And I think that the lamp lighter might get a chance now to get out to people because it never really got out to people um, being published mm. by, blood acts they just didn't it just didn't um shift but i hope that that this time these women's voices yeah. and the man, the man um will be will be heard because um they were extraordinary characters to create i mean black harriet uh was called black harriet and when you look through these when i was doing all the research um for the lamplighter i came across all these people called black something black mary you know black sam and uh but you would never get a white Harriet and a White Sam. Mm. And so even the names um of people not just being changed but to the to the slave owner's second name and being changed, you know, from, from whatever your African name was to McDonald or, or whatever. But mm. but the the, the the naming of people just felt so shocking to me, uh, mm. the records of that. And and um and then the very idea of being a, a mother <coughs> myself of of your own child and being sold away from you, which uh, was, was really deeply, deeply affecting and shocking. And for some reason, people sort of tend to dehumanize um, people that were slaves. They don't think of them as grandmothers and grandfathers, mothers and fathers, daughters and sons, but sisters and brothers, they think of them as slaves. And as soon as you have put that word on people, it's a bit like the modern day refugee,
0: you somehow mm. take away so much of their humanity yes and you've been certainly in your work and in your life um, fighting these battles in as far as you can fight them as a single human um, well all your life and it's Mm. pretty damn depressing that when you were writing about this in your 20s you're still at the age of nearly 59 writing about it now and yet I think of you possibly because of your enormous smile and personality and sense of humor, Um, as an optimist, um, anyone who knows me knows I'm absolutely obsessed by optimism and pessimism because um, we have a country run by an optimist and the results so far are not great. Um, Where are you in terms of hope in relation to Black Lives Matter? Not the the specific movement, but... uh, Things changing for the better really really changing for the better i
1: know i know Christine. i, I, I think obsessively too about optimism do um, you pessimism yes i do i find it i find it really fascinating um the whole you know i'm just i, I just well, there's so much that we could say about that we could yeah. probably just talk for an hour just on the subject of optimism yes. and, and i do find it really fascinating because there's also judgments that people have so people are judgmental towards pessimists exactly and they think, and an optimism that people think um oh, if you're an optimist that that somehow got a higher moral rating exactly. and, and and um and so I think that, that those that binary choice as well that's offered us either or is is like every binary choice that we're offered it's it, it, it's false it's a false mm. choice. I would like to find another word somewhere. Um, you know, the pessimistic optimist or the optimistic pessimist. Well, it's very interesting
0: I... because Gramsci, I'm with Gramsci and he talked about pessimism of the intellect, optimism of the will, and that's what I sign up to.
1: Exactly, exactly. I sign up to that too. I I always would want to describe myself as hopeful um, because I think without hope, you're dead. Mm. Um, we're all dead and I think we have to be hopeful and I do feel hopeful about this generation of young people. Yes. Um, around the world, um, all the wee Gretas everywhere around mm. the world. I feel very, very hopeful about the young people that have been taken to the street to protest in their thousands um, Black Lives Matter protests, the young people that are changing their reading lists and wanting to become informed about racism. Um, I feel very hopeful about the young people that care about the world that we're in and that care about the environment. And I feel that these young people, when we get to a chance to be in their world, might make a different world. Um, I really do feel hopeful and optimistic about them because there was a there was a whole period for maybe twenty or thirty years where it felt like there was a terrible apathy that mm-hmm. had descended on young people and that nobody knew anything cared or anything, you know. Yeah. And this generation of young people are really there's, there's just really something that, that that makes your heart sing. Mm. Um, you know, my, my my son and his friends are all like that. They all they all make me so happy. And yeah. Ella, uh, Caroline's daughter, is yeah. is like that. And she makes me so proud and happy. You know, she's a vegan. She cares about the world. She cares about ecology. They question everything. They they mm. they, they bring you know they question me. Um, I get I get told off by them about different things, which I like. I love to get get asked.
0: <laughs> I love to
1: be told off. Um, you know, in fact, just the other day, um, Matthew told me that some term that I used, which I'm not going to use now, because um, because he told me it just wasn't, you just, it's just not on. And he said it would be the equivalent of somebody saying coloured or Negro now. And I said, really, I, I absolutely didn't know, and this term that I used was was offensive to the group of people that I was describing. Wow. Um So I, I think I think I think the, the flip side of this young generation is that they're also incredibly judgmental. And I don't yes. think being I don't think being judgmental and being punitive is the way forward either. Um, yeah, I think that's that's a real a real problem in our society. And if that continues, that level of judgment, that's going to cause an awful lot of problems. Mm. So um, yes, optimistically pessimistic, pessimistic. Optimist. I remember once um, Marty saying to me, "Mum, you're uh, an extroverted introvert, and I'm an introverted extrovert." And uh, he said this when he was like sixteen, and I had to think about this for ages. And uh, I realised that he's actually true. It's true that I appear to be um, extrovert and I'm very kind of open and uh, smiley and outgoing. Um, but I'm actually not that brilliant and uh, not really. That's not really my inclination. Mm. And uh, but he is good with large groups of people. But he appears to be much more diffident and shy. And so. Yes, we're full of, we're, we're, we're complex, aren't
0: we? Um, we are complex. My mother was an extroverted introvert. Everybody thought she was an extrovert, but she absolutely wasn't. And she would come back from, she had more friends than anyone I'd ever met. And she would come back exhausted. Uh, mm-hmm. Whereas I get get my energy from going out, basically, and talking to people, which when you're in the middle of a pandemic isn't ideal, clearly. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. If you had mm-hmm. one hope, Jackie, for what would come out of this, what would it be?
1: Out of this period out of lockdown
0: well out of the pandemic really
1: um if i had one one single hope it would be that that because because of the the, the different conjunction of things and um, because we're living in tinderbox times um that people's awareness of racism and their and their uh, thinking about it that that would actually change things for a greater and a lasting good um that would be my biggest hope that we'd we'd live in a society um that was much much more racially aware um but my other big hope would be that we that we retain our sense of community um spirit and helping each other and kindness and doing things for each other noticing um each other's lives and i suppose if i'm allowed three my biggest hope would be that that um that the level of loneliness that, that a lot of people have experienced during lockdown that has, that has actually taught them about what people experience generally a lot of gen, a lot of people are lonely that that new knowledge will help also a greater understanding for for old people or for people with mental health problems mm. or that we might live in a society now because we've all been i mean i found this time very mentally challenging and i think think Of myself as quite strong mentally, mm. but I've had you know days where um I've I felt actually quite ill mentally ill, and I've had you know it's, it's felt like a, a pain in my head. And and I felt like um you know a terrible you know when you go and put your pajamas under your pillow or whatever for the at the night, I felt this terrible thing of thinking, Oh my god, you know, tomorrow I'm going to have to do the same thing. And the terrible repetition of days has really got to me and it's made me. Really think about people that live with mental health problems mm. all the time, mm. and from what whatever that is, people that say have washed their hands all the time anyway that are suddenly in this in this situation, and it's made me think that I didn't feel en- enough. I um, <laughs> you know I mean I've always been em- empathetic as we were talking about earlier, but it's made me feel that I didn't feel like a, a great enough understanding mm. of of those kind of problems. So I hope that lots of people will have had that experience like me, and that it will make us be a bit more understanding and tolerant as a society um just generally
0: well here's to of all of
1: that
0: for, christina. Mm? Here's to all of that that's absolutely wonderful jackie and such a delight to talk to you thank you so so much and i hope we can meet in real life soon it's been a huge pleasure christina thank you so much for listening to this podcast If you liked it, I'd be really grateful if you could share, rate and review it on whatever platform you use to listen to your podcast. It really does help other people find it. Do follow me on Twitter, where I'm at Christina underscore and on Instagram, where I'm at QueenChristinaWriter. If you want to find out how I dealt with my own big work interruption, you could check out my book, The Art of Not Falling Apart, which is recommended self-isolation reading in The Guardian and the Eye. Here's to Not Falling Apart, and doing work that works for all of us and i hope you'll join me again next week